I'll be reading this morning from Mark 16, 1 through 8. And may I just say, He is risen. He is risen indeed. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Resurrection Sunday, everybody. Bow your heads with me. Um, if you don't know me, I think everybody here may know me, but those joining on Zoom, I am John, the pastor at Citizens Church, and it's just a joy to have you all here this morning. You are welcome, and we are happy to have you. Let's pray together. God, we, we adore you. We come here today to worship you, which means we come here to want you. We come here to desire you. Sometimes we may have to remind ourselves of that uh, with how hard the week is, with how much we've forgotten you. But we come here, God, at your feet to adore you. And we can't adore you unless we confess that we are broken, bent, and sinful. God, we confess before you the wrongs that we have done this week and the privacy and the intimacy of your love, which does not shame us or guilt us. We can release the ways that we have not been as we even would want ourselves to be. We haven't even lived up to our own standard, God. We confess those things before you and we thank you that you sent your son to die for us to, for, the, for, the, for the forgiveness of our sins, God that the cross has the power to wipe clean all of those things which we regret and ask for you to take away from us, we are made as white as snow. We ask you to supply everything we need. God, I ask that you would supply for me that your word would be clear and that we would be struck with conviction that the power and the reality of the real historical event of the resurrection. In your name, amen. All right. So this week, something happened, actually, that was pretty hard to believe. Six days before Easter Sunday, on last Monday, a very unlikely event happened in Portland. 
Though there had been prophecies on my phone in what we call the weather forecast that there was going to be an impending snowstorm, I did not heed them. Though Ellen told me, what are you going to do with the snowstorm with your kids? I did not listen. I made no plans. I was so convinced that the forecast was a fluke and that I would wake up on the morning of Monday and there would be no snow that I slept very soundly Sunday night. I planned to drop my kids off to school and get on with my day off, grab breakfast with my wife and just relax for a minute. And then I woke up not even remembering the forecast and that like bright light coming through your window where you just know like something's different. There's that gleam from all around, the holy gleam of a snowstorm. And I go, oh, the alarm's going off. And I go, oh, no. And I look out. And there's not just like two inches of thick snow, but it's like just coming down. The unbelievable thing happened on Monday morning. The thing that I didn't expect. The news that every parent dreads, not even the two-hour delay, full school closure. I was totally sure that the forecast was a fluke. I did not believe it was possible. And then I woke up and my eyes saw the indisputable reality. And then everything I had planned for Monday was in question. In the moment when I looked outside, I had, if I'm honest with myself, two options of what to do with what I understood. I could refuse what my eyes saw as simply as I had refused the caution of Ellen, and I could then proceed to act as if the snow had not happened. I could drop my three kids off at school. I could just delude myself that the teachers would pick them up, drive off, go have breakfast with Megan, and like ignore the phone calls, ignore the strangers who hopefully would find my kids being like, what kind of crazy parent would just drop their kid off with a nose. I could do all of these foolish things if I didn't listen to the reality of what had happened. Or I could change my plans. These are the two options before me when the stunning new reality of something that I didn't expect is right before my eyes. Now, if this event had happened in a newspaper and I hadn't seen the actual snow, would I believe it? Well, if I'm honest with myself, yeah, I'd totally believe it, right? Even if there wasn't a photo accompanying, I would believe it because I have put my trust on some level in the newspaper. Not even a particular newspaper. I've put my trust in the institution, perhaps, of journalism but probably not even in the institution of journalism. There's like a lot of wonky journalism. There's a lot of misinformation out there. I haven't even put my trust into that. No, I've put my trust into something that has proven reliable for me in general. It's not an institution. It's my own experience. I have found it to be reliable. So my gut reaction is to trust it. Now, I want you all to think about the Bible. 
have the stories in the Bible as you understand them, as the people you've known that have lived them out and have relied on them, have they been reliable? Have they been relatable? Have they been relevant? See, we can't judge the Bible like we judge photojournalism. These stories were first distributed not with somebody with a camera that could show empirical proof, but by word of mouth. And then later, the authors that we have of the Gospels wrote them down. The book of Mark was written probably around 70 AD. Jesus died in 33 AD. That's 40 years of word of mouth before people had actually codified them into written documents to distribute them probably far and wide as the church expanded and grew outside of the Palestinian area. And they are taking all of this rich story and they're putting it together. And that is how the Bible started. Can we trust it is like the first question we have to ask ourselves as Christians. Because when we proclaim Resurrection Sunday, we are proclaiming not just that the resurrection is a nice metaphorical allegory, like Aesop's fables to live by, but that it actually happened. As unbelievable, more so than two inches of snow on April 11th, the resurrection is truly difficult to believe. But the question is, How is it put together? Can you trust it? Do you see it as reliable, relatable, and relevant? Now, the biblical authors have done a lot actually to vouch for this. This was a concern for them. Luke, in chapter one, if you open up Luke and give it a read today or this week, challenge. He starts with this in verse one. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke's a journalist. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. This is the person he's writing to. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So it is first and foremost on Luke's mind that this be a reliable account. And the other gospel writers are no different. So let's just be honest. The text to date is implausible. In fact, it's a seemingly impossible event. And let's just make it a little more complicated. Who are the people that are giving the account of the risen Jesus and an angel who's delivering that he's risen? They're women, three women. Now, I want you to put yourself in, in, the, in this culture. Women are very much secondary in terms of trustworthiness. If, if the gospel writers at this time in this culture wanted to create a story and fabricate it, Why on earth would they have women tell the account of the resurrection? It doesn't add up. If you want people to believe a story, you would have righteous men come out and deliver a story of their eyewitness account. But the first people to see the risen Jesus are women. Why would you do that? Unless it was true. Doesn't it give you pause? And then wouldn't you imagine... 
that if this was a, a written up story to get us to believe in a religious institution like the early church, that the disciples who tell the story would be the most exemplary, great students who do everything perfectly and are like role models to follow. But all you have to do is go to a Good Friday service like we had last Friday and watch as the candles were extinguished and the readings were done of the Passion Story to see how, like, how wrong it could, could, could go so fast. I mean, there is doubt, there's betrayal, there's conspiracy. This band of brothers that had come around Jesus just like unravels before our very eyes. Almost, it, it's the late stages of Jesus's ministry appear just utterly tragic. Why would you have these people tell the story? Unless in some way the relatableness of us being able to say, I get it. I can see how if I was with God himself, I would be just like them. So ultimately, the challenge is to us, just as Jesus said, who do you say I am? Ultimately, the challenge is to us whether to believe in the message of the resurrection and in the faith of Christianity. Jesus had a ragtag group of followers. And from almost the beginning, his teachings are countercultural. He was viewed as rebellious inflammatory, egotistical, and disruptive to essentially every social system of power. In fact, the people that tend to like Jesus are who? The poor, the needy, the diseased, sick, women gather all around Jesus, children, ethnic groups from the margins. The have-nots are the people that are drawn to Jesus. And he does countless miracles and acts of kindness and goodwill. And he does things that to us seem foolish. He hears the news of a death of a close friend, Lazarus. And in the later stages of his ministry, despite everybody's caution against it, he decides to not go away from Jerusalem where all of the powerful rulers and political powers are after Jesus coming out to get him and saying, no more, we've got to shut this down. But his friend lives in Bethany, which is just down the road from Jerusalem. And seeing the tears and the agony of his close friends, Mary and Martha, he decides not to head away, but to head toward out of the frying pan, into the fire, as we say. And that is what begins the story that we celebrate in Holy Week and that culminates in Easter Sunday. To visit his close friend puts him in the crosshairs, but what God, what, what person that we wouldn't look up to as our ultimate role model wouldn't do that? Isn't that the person we want to be? And he does it out of love. And that first resurrection story that we see before this, the resurrection of Lazarus, is where the dominoes begin to fall. The Passover festival is about to begin and the whole week becomes orchestrated 
Jesus carries out over top of the Passover festival, this Jewish festival that was to honor God's intervention and liberation of his people from the oppressive enslavement of an Egyptian empire builder into a free people who could follow him into a promised land. Over top of that narrative, Jesus relives this story. He elevates this story to free a new people from an impressive enslavement to sin itself. And man, the devil just ratchets up the pressure. Even in the upper room, his closest disciples are still unwilling to wash Jesus's feet. His closest guy, the main guy, Peter, is scared out of his mind and justifies denying Jesus to save his own skin just to get out of a tight spot. Are these the people? Is this the story? That's what we have to ask ourselves. We might wish it was another way, but the reality of the Easter story is it just gets right into our soul and we go, yeah, that actually adds up. Yeah, that actually makes sense. That actually sounds like my life, and that actually sounds like the kind of God that I would like. That feels reliable. That feels solid. That feels relatable. And actually, if I apply that to my life today, it will be relevant. I'm here to tell you that, that the gospel works. The messengers of this story are the most in need of grace and forgiveness. They're the most in need. And when we come before Jesus on Easter, we find ourselves the most in need of grace and forgiveness. That's why we look to the open tomb and we have hope because we have put ourselves in the tomb so many times by so many actions. The world has put us in the tomb so many times. We've been in the darkness. And we hope for new life. Jesus himself said that all of these things that happen in the Holy Week, in the Passion Week, would happen. In Mark 14, verse 27, he says, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so the story of our salvation is actually mankind murdering God. And God saying, as Jesus says on the cross, right? Forgive them for they know not what they are doing. That is the story of the resurrection. In our hearts, we can't help but feel that we would rather murder God. We're so sick and tired. We're so in our survival mode of watching out for ourselves. We have so much bitterness that we harbor deep down and God rushes in in the resurrection story. He says, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And which story triumphs? Is it the story of death and hatred and evil? Or is it the story of grace and forgiveness? So the resurrection story is primarily a story of broken people and a good God who is willing to try again on us again and again and again. And it's been universal in its application for thousands of years, changing millions, perhaps billions of lives 
affecting every aspect of society. Is it a reliable story? Is it relatable? Is it relevant? That's the question you have to ask yourself on Easter Sunday. So in Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, we find ourselves at the break of day on Sunday morning. And it says, when Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus's body. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now let's, let's kind of do the math for a second. Things had gone so sideways in the crucifixion, so unexpected, even though Jesus has said, I'm going to my death, this is going to happen, that people were woefully unprepared. And then they just sat there like mortified, worried about their own lives, just destitute about what was happening to Jesus, completely unprepared for his burial, feeling that they had dishonored him in the moment when the snow came down, in the moment when everything they didn't think and hadn't listened to came true, they were caught unprepared. And so I'm sure in a certain level of humiliation, mourning, grief, shame, we find Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome had bought spices Saturday night. Jesus is dead. They bought spices Saturday night. They come in the morning to anoint his dead body because they do not believe the forecast. They do not believe the prophecy. If they had believed the prophecy, they would be bringing breakfast. But they brought spices. These are people just like us who go, man, it was a really good story, but it's not true. I saw him die. Death comes for all of us. Let's get practical. Let's get real. Retirement counts are what matters, right? This life is all I have. Carpe diem. All of those things, they're just like us until they're not. Jesus had said, he said that he must be killed and three days rise again. We see that in Mark 8. He spoke plainly about it, it says. And even his closest disciples, Peter, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, that's not a very good entrepreneurial plan, Jesus. That's not a growth trajectory for us that you would be publicizing that you're going to die. Let's not talk about that. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. This is the plan. The plan is that you must go through death to find new life. The plan for all of my followers is that to believe in me means to go through death to new life. And then how does this story end? If we look at verse 8, why am I preaching this story on Easter Sunday? Look at how this ends. The women went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The end. By the way, all of your Bibles in this, there will be a parenthesis around everything after this. And it will say the original manuscripts did not have the rest of the book of Mark. This is the end of the reliable manuscripts of Mark. They run away in fear. Happy Easter, everybody. They're scared out of their minds. What does that mean? 
What does that mean that the book of Mark would end with the women who are like mourning for Jesus, hear that he is risen again and flee from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. I think Mark is challenging us with a question. I think he's asking us to put ourselves in the story. Look, there was a lot of stories already out there. The church was built and moving. People understood that Jesus was resurrected. If they read or heard somebody read this story, they would not think that this was the end of the story because they know Jesus is risen and alive. And that's shown in the other gospel accounts. So why does Mark choose to end it this way? Mark's posing a question. Think about it. Put yourself in their shoes. If you had heard Jesus was written, would it unsettle you? Would it challenge you to think about your life? Would it make you tremble with astonishment and fear if the resurrection was in fact real? Now, there's a couple things going on here. One is, let's really think about it. Like, why would they do this? Jesus is written. Wouldn't they be just like praising and jumping for joy? going to the disciples immediately and telling them. Well, I thought about it this way. It could be the weight of the story. These are three women alone with still everybody really mad at the followers of Jesus. This is not a safe place to be in in Jerusalem right now. And they've got really important information. Uh, At the turn of uh, the millennium, Many of you, if you were as geeky as me, may have followed one of the most hype movies of the early internet age, The Lord of the Rings. And I thought it was an urban legend, but it's actually true. When the first movie, when Fellowship was just getting finished, there were pre-release sequences that that were being transported apparently from one office to to another across town in London when they were mastering the film. And it was up to the IT manager of Peter Jackson's team to deliver these sequences without them falling into the grubby, greedy hands of all those people who want to leak it across the internet. And what did he do it on? This was the early Apple age on an iPod. So we've got like this highly sensitive data that needs to get across town on an iPod. And the guy gets chased by muggers that are gonna like get the story, leak the story, take it out of his control. I bet that's probably some of the fear that these three women had. We've got this really important story. We've got to get across town to the disciples. Like, I'm really nervous. There's probably some of that. There's probably some of that. But I think it's deeper even than that. I think it goes down right to the core there being that there's a change in reality, that the forecast came true, that Jesus's prophecies were real, that everything he said was in fact the way things were going to be, that he was completely trustworthy and reliable, that stranger than fiction was the way that this was going to go. And they realized at this point, there's no looking back. Filled with exhilaration, they had to move forward. Like a cross-country move to a house unseen, right? It's go time. There's no, the bags are packed. It's in the car. We've sold the house. 
The only direction now is forward. And I think that's what any Christian who's honest with themselves or anyone who's pitching this seriously to a new believer will say is, you can't look back from this. Once you decide, it's life changing. Everything will change. The resurrection changes everything. And it's a completely new horizon after that because Jesus's teachings are so counterintuitive that to live by them is crazy unless they're true. Death to self is life. It's good to love your enemy. Meekness is strength. Weakness is power. Servants are the true leaders. These are the upside down teachings of Jesus. And I would say it's not uncommon for followers of Jesus when you see people radically converted to the way of Jesus to change their life purpose, to quit jobs, to find their meaning clarified, to change careers, to give up addictions, to join new communities, and to wake up anchored with purpose. Because suddenly what was important isn't important anymore. Dallas Willard writes this, he says, we do not judge the possibilities of automobiles merely by a survey of those we find in the junkyard or the possibilities of plant life by considering only plants that have been starved of necessary nutrients. So here's the question that the resurrection begs for us. Can we judge reality, true reality, but what we see in the junkyard of earth? And what I mean by that is Christians believe that the earth, that our bodies, that the creatures of the earth have all fallen to the curse of sin. That what we see is not the true reality as it was intended to be. So we can't judge reality out of what we see every day in and day out because we live in a junkyard and we are junkyard cars. But Christ comes and he says, no, this is what the intended design was. When the engineer was in the factory and laid out the blueprints and the first model came off the lot, that's what it's like. And the resurrection shows you that that is the intended outcome for humankind. And it's intended to bring in us, just to think that way, is intended to get us to hope. To anchor our hope that this life is not all that there is. And the possibilities are truly amazing and terrifying because it requires us to believe, to believe. And it could just be that we're believing in a tall tale. Could be, but we're just believing in a myth. But deep down in your body, when a loved one dies and you look in their final eyes or listen to their final breath, don't you yearn from the bottom of your heart that it would not be so. When you think about your own impending death that is coming at you, don't you wish that it were not so? Don't you feel that all of this seems so meaningless? Isn't there some deep, unexplained question in you? But because of our shame and our guilt and honestly, our very low expectations of this life as we get older, I heard somebody say, just just lower your expectations, right? If you want to live a good life, lower your expectations. Well, there's, there's some truth to that. But Jesus actually says, no, keep them high. Keep them really, really high. Expect resurrection. Live with hope. 
And where that leaves us is that we are filled with trepidation. Do I go for it or do I not? Shouldn't I hedge my bets? Reliable people around me, my parents, my good friends are saying, you're you're crazy. This isn't the way you should do it. Safety is important. Security matters. Don't you care about your family? Yeah, this thing sounds dangerous, this Christianity thing. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys read or have read Harry Potter. Hopefully, everyone in this room probably has. Uh, In book four, which I just finished with my kids and it got so dark, I said, we're going to wait for book five for a little bit. Uh, when When we finish book four, there's a hilarious part of that book. And it revolves around the character Dobby the House Elf. Anybody familiar with Dobby? We got any? Okay, I'm speaking to somebody who knows what I'm talking about. Okay. So I don't have to explain house elves too much. But basically the idea is that they're indentured servants to their wizard masters, right? Until they're freed. So they're under sort of a a spell or an obligation to serve them. And they're these sort of like pathetic, whiny, groveling characters, And Harry meets Dobby, I think, in in book two or three. And he's serving, he's just wearing rags, and he's serving this horrible, mean master. And he's so scared always that, like, Harry's going to hit him or hurt him. And then by the end of that book, Harry does something which frees Dobby. Dobby's free. And he goes, I didn't, I couldn't even imagine what my life would be. Dobby's so happy to be free. He always talks about himself in the third person. And you just kind of, it's very endearing. It's like, oh my gosh, he had no idea what life could be lived. And now he's free. But in book four, we encounter Winky. Winky's a lady house elf, much in the same place as Dobby. But now we know what's possible for Winky. And Winky acts in the same pathetic and cowardly way. In one way, so endearing because she's so loyal with her service. But also sad because we can now tell she's so narrow-minded that she doesn't know what she's missing. And Dobby tries really hard to bring her out of her enslavement, even when it becomes possible for her to be freed. When her master releases her, Winky is ashamed that she's no longer enslaved. She goes, house elves are used to being enslaved and are taught that there is nothing worse than to be set free. So she won't be free. She returns to the comfort of her enslavement and she tells everybody around her, don't be free. You don't want that. That's scary. This is what life in the junkyard of the curse of sin in this world has done to us. And the voice of the devil and those infected by sin say, don't do that. Don't live free. It's a trap. Something's going to happen to you. Somebody's going to take advantage of you. You don't want that freedom. And that curse has leaked into all of mankind and all creatures, even to the very ground itself. And we can see it as clear as day. We can see it in climate change and global warming. We can see it in the, the, the nature of entropy on our cities and how things just seem to fall apart. We can see it in death, disease, tragedy, and natural disasters. And we say in the bottom of our head, it can't be, it just can't be, and I want to do everything in my life to change it. Is this story relatable? Is it relevant? Is it reliable? Kathy Keller writes in a recent Easter message, our faith is historically verifiable or it's nothing. 
Of all belief systems, Christianity is the only one that insists that its truths must be founded on the historical existence of a person, the person named Jesus. Paul echoes this, writing in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And in 15, verse 19, he says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, if only in this life, if it's just for this life, if Christ is just a way to get through this life, then we are all people to be pitied. We have a different problem. Most of us are prone to be more relying on science. We tend to be drawn towards atheism and the idea that this is literally all there is. But in the ancient Near East, in that culture, that would have been a completely foreign concept. Nobody thought that. Everybody believed in the spiritual. The women in this story, the stakes are not whether they believe in something beyond an invisible, the soul, something above, a creator. They already believed all that. Everybody believed that. Even the Romans believed that. The challenge was, is Jesus the Son of God? Was he? That's the question that Paul is asking. Did God come in the flesh as a man named Jesus and live a selfless life of service to love and serve his creation, even going so far as to die at their bent, confused, rebellious, murderous hands, all the while extending love and grace saying, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Did that happen? Because I hear that image and I go, that is reliable. That is relatable. That is relevant. I believe that this paints the most loving picture of a God who created humans in his own image, that he would come to live in total solidarity and compassion to what our bodies endure in sin and lead us into what we call a new exodus out of the slavery of sin and into a promised land. Jesus did all he said he would do with complete integrity at the cost of his life. He believed it. He definitely believed it. And those around him saw it and they believed it. And those who were friends of them believed it. And so on and so on. Even though they knew that it wasn't for their life, it was not for their prosperity. In fact, especially for the early church, it would probably mean death. But they believed it because it was right and true and good. If we're really honest with ourselves in our postmodern age, where everyone creates their own truth, the idea that there is truth at all is quite a frightening idea especially in this city. The whole, the whole modern viewpoint is that you make your own truth. You build it. This life is just a building block Lego set of truth pieces that I put together however I want it. And at the end, I found my truth. Dallas Willard writes in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he says, recently a pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. She turned the controls for what she thought was a steep ascent and flew straight into the ground. She was unaware that she had been flying upside down. He says, this is a parable of human existence in our times. Not exactly that everyone is crashing, though there is enough of that. But most of us as individuals and world society as a whole live at a high speed and often with no idea whether we are flying upside down or right side up. 
Indeed, we are haunted by a strong suspicion that there may be no difference, or at least that it's unknown or totally irrelevant. What is reality? Can we know it? Is it just subjective? Is everything relative? Shouldn't I just find what works for me? Is there anything beyond this life? And Willard's whole premise in The Divine Conspiracy, the name of the book itself, which is a great read, is that God wants us to conspire with him, which means to act at the, for a common end in opposition to the selfishness and greed of this world with radical love, grace, and forgiveness. So the only way that the women can ultimately respond. They've already said, I'm with Jesus. Like Peter, they've said, where would I go? You are the Christ. You're the only one that can save. The only thing we can now do is say, teach me, be kind to me, laugh with me, guide me, be good to me, God. I am but a 37-year-old bumbling man, and I've committed my life to you. Please have my back. <laughs> There's a cost to following, following Jesus for sure. Willard again writes, he says, there is, but there is a cost to not following Jesus as well. To depart from righteousness is to choose a life of crushing burdens, failures, and disappointments. A life caught in the toils of endless problems that are never resolved. This life, if we choose it as we see it, is a life caught in the toils of endless problems. It's an unending soap opera, that some, a sometimes horror show nor, known as the normal human life. So there's a cost to not discipling. There's a cost to not following Jesus. The cost of discipleship, though it may take all we have, is small compared to the lot of those who don't accept Christ's invitation to be part of his company in the way of life. So, we see the behavior of everyone around Jesus as he leads up to the cross. We can criticize it. We can say, I wouldn't be like Peter. We can say, I wouldn't be like Judas. And, or we can realize that it's incredibly relatable. It's totally relevant. We've all been in that position. We're just like them. I'm just like Peter. I can't buy spices in time like Mary. I don't believe the forecast until it's right before my eyes. I miss important dates. I don't say goodbye before death. I cave to social pressures and give in to my most important values. These are all the things that are happening in this story. But that's the whole point, is Jesus came to save us because we can't save ourselves. That's the whole point. That's why we're all here. We're not here because we're so great. We're not here because we have the secret potion and we're going to be the savior of the world. We come because we believe we can't save the world. And there's only one who can. And he restores even the most broken people. And it frees us from all kinds of self-protection that we have. It frees us from the reasons we decide to alienate people. We're freed from defensiveness. 
There's nothing worth defending except Jesus. We're freed from shame. We repent of our sin to be fully known and fully loved by him. We no longer have to be ashamed. We're we're freed from our fear of being so small. And we can rely on him to be in control. Even at night, just so we can rest. God, take my worries so I can rest tonight. We're freed from criticism. I heard this week and I loved it. We're, we can, we're just freed from criticism as Christians. We can let it roll off of us because it's, if it's untrue and Jesus loves me, then I'm good. If it is true, then we go and repent before the throne. And we say, change me, I repent and I want to change because that is actually true. Jesus knew his message was exclusive and he said to his disciples in John 8, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is the paradox of the Christian faith is that freedom comes from enslavement. Freedom comes from a choice, an exclusive choice to take an exclusive path. Paul says, I am a captive to Christ. But it frees us from figuring it all out on our our own, from building our own philosophical cocktails, from putting our cultural influences together to make our culture. It frees us from finding all of the techniques. It frees us from all the habits that we get from religion because we are devoted to an exclusive and perfect way of Jesus. So I would just ask you to ask yourself that question. Who is Jesus? Do I believe what I know of him? Is it reliable, relatable, and relevant? Is the resurrection story those things? And I'll just end by talking a little bit here about something I read that was in the Times by a man named Esau Macaulay. If you're not familiar with Esau, he's an incredible Anglican minister, black Anglican minister who has written a lot about George Floyd and everything that happened in the last two years. He was instrumental for me in navigating that time. He just talks about the power of the resurrection for the body. Jesus's resurrection, he says, has implications not just for his body, but for all bodies subject to death. Christians believe that what God did for Jesus, he will do for us. The resurrection of Jesus is the forerunner of the resurrection of our bodies and the restoration of the earth. There are endless debates and speculations about what types of bodies we will have at the resurrection. What is compelling to me is the clear teaching that our ethnicities are not wiped away at the resurrection. Jesus was raised with his brown Middle Eastern Jewish body. When my body is raised, Esau writes, it will be a black body one that is honored alongside bodies of every hue and color. The resurrection of black bodies will be the definition, be the definitive rejection of all forms of racism. I thought this was a beautiful hope in the resurrection. At the end of the Christian story, he writes, I am not saved from my blackness. It is rendered everlasting. Our bodies are liberated and transfigured, but still black. That will be the eternal testimony to our worth. So as you dig into every corner of this story, you can unearth these amazing, undeserving gifts of a loving God. And it has to start with this. We have to say to ourselves, just like the 12-step program starts, 12-step program is so helpful in thinking about how to change. 
And how does it start? It says, I admit that I am powerless over my addictions, over alcohol, over drugs. I admit I'm powerless over my sin. And I admit that my life has become unmanageable. The second step is I come to believe that a power greater than my own can restore my own sanity. And the third step is I make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. This is the beginning. If you feel in your heart right now a yearning to actually call Jesus your Lord, these are the first three steps. It's just to admit you're powerless. To come to believe that a power greater than my own can restore me to sanity. And to make a decision to turn my life over to the care of Jesus. And maybe the most formational and foundational question is, can you do life without Jesus? Can you? Has your life shown you at this point that it's actually capable to really live a good life without Jesus? Can you live up to even your own standards? And if not, the resounding message of the early church, which Peter proclaims in Acts 2, in the very first sermon ever given, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, into the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter is giving the proto 12-step message. He's inviting all who would listen to transformation into a new life by giving up a way that isn't working and clinging to the risen Jesus. So as we close, we're going to put up the house music for a minute. We're going to have a chance to pray for each other in small groups. If you are feeling that this message has changed you and that you want to accept Jesus, Beth is available to pray with and to talk with you, and I am as well. If you're on Zoom, please just send a text, a private text message. And just take a moment with each other uh, to pray. And then we'll do our final songs and take communion together.